Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we are really excited to be joined by Ingrid Harvold Kavangrave, who is a lecturer, assistant professor in international development at King's College London, and her research is centered on the role of finance and development, structural features of underdevelopment, the political economy of development, and critically assessing the economics field. And she's also the founder and editor of the blog, Developing Economics, and founder and steering group member of Diversifying and Decolonizing Economics, or DECON. So um, welcome back to the show, Ingrid. Thank you so much for having me. I should also just say that recently I've been um, I've been going to the Developing Economics website over and over again for guests, and you you guys just have the best stuff there, and I want to congratulate and thank you for um, doing the work that you do. I've noticed that because I think, uh, yeah, since <laughs> I was on the podcast, I think it was a year ago now, mm-hmm. more than a year ago, uh, I started listening to it um, regularly, and I noticed oh, that cool. it's great. Often there's a, a yeah. conversation with someone that I've recently published a blog post. Quite, quite often, yes, <laughs> in fact. Um, so I'd actually like to talk about a piece that you wrote for Rope, which is the Review of African Political Economy. It was about Samir Min, and I've been interested in him for some time, and I, I'm so happy that you, you wrote about his work. And so for most of the show, I want to talk about his work, but I was wondering if perhaps you could talk just a little bit about his life, and then we can talk a little about the work that he did. He um, was writing, I mean, he did his PhD at the end of the 50s, so (laughs) quite a long time ago. I think he was born in the 30s in Egypt, so he's Egyptian, and did his PhD in France and wrote it on, um, in economics. So he was like a socialist from he was in high school. He was like very radical from the beginning. So he wanted to do economics because that's, he felt that that was the way that he could uh, have a career, but also uh, be very close to activism. And so in the 50s, this was kind of the heyday of like modernization theory was just becoming popular, um, which, you know, is this theory of uh, all countries kind of following these stages of growth. So he was very, very critical of uh, modernization theory already in the 50s. So like very early critic. This is also a time when a lot of, uh, well, some Marxists, especially coming from the third world, were thinking about how to adapt Marxism for to understand development problems. So that was kind of the context that he was writing in from the beginning. And then of course, in like end of the 50s and in the 60s, the whole, uh, well, a lot of the third world started going through this, well, independence movement after independence movement and countries started becoming independent. And he was an advisor to many of these governments and tried to help them uh, counter uh, colonial legacies um, in practice. So he was very sort of actively involved in policy but also he was writing very critically about um, the economic structures that he was seeing that were reproducing a lot of the colonial legacies and inequalities that uh, he was seeing around him. Yeah, let's talk about his approach to political economy. You you wrote that he encourages us to think structurally. What what does that mean? Yeah, so that is um, key in his uh, his approach. And that means basically that he particularly paid attention to these global structures that underpinned what he saw as like a global system of exploitation, basically. So that means he looked at how labor, for example, is structured or organized globally and how the global production system is connected, right? So this is um, in contrast to, for example, how a lot of mainstream economists see the world today, which is usually through like 
individuals being, you know, existing separate from each other across the world, which is what um, economists call methodological individualism, right? So like a structural approach is radically different from that because it sees everything is connected in this structure. And in his case, it was this global structure. So that structural approach that he took basically is what led him to be able to look at concepts like core periphery relations. So the, like um, relationship between the global south and the global north and what he called core and periphery and imperialism and equal exchange and he could like see that this global system because he looked at the structures as such he could see that there was this tendency towards polarization and inequality globally he also asks us to to identify eurocentrism as a as a structural prejudice you know i'm teaching about the enlightenment now in my 10th grade history class and I guess I've been teaching it all wrong. Like I'm teaching it as this as this really kind of wonderful movement with great values. But he says maybe that's not true. What does he say about the Enlightenment, and and how does that relate to questions of development? That um, that's a great question, and I think that's how the Enlightenment is pretty much always taught as this you know wonderful peaceful period of rationality, mm-hmm. objectivity, mm-hmm. science. So basically, yeah, he uh, exposes this, and he was one of the first to really expose the flaws in this conception and the idea, so he links this to capitalism and how uh, economists and social theorists at the time saw capitalism as developing endogenously during the period of the enlightenment uh, as this peaceful, rational process. And he sort of takes a very historical approach and looks at how, you know, actually capitalism developed, you know, closely linked with uh, colonialism and the slave trade and those were not like you know peaceful rational processes they were like very violent and exploitative so his point by like uncovering this and exposing this violence basically that uh, is associated with the enlightenment he argues that this yeah covers up that capitalism actually is a very colonial race and a racial process from the beginning, which is important to understand because I think also what he calls Eurocentrism is, uh, well, first of all, this idea that um, Europe developed as a, you know, peaceful and endogenous, that there was a peaceful endogenous process in Europe, the development of capitalism. But the other part of Eurocentrism is that this kind of idea is often exported to other countries, developing countries, and the idea is that they can follow the same steps as Europe did when they developed. So then by exposing the Eurocentrism of this account, he also uh, shows that it's it would be impossible for right. developing countries to develop in that way because that wasn't how Europe developed. It was closely tied with colonialism and, and the slave trade. So uh, that is, yeah, uh, basically the um, key point in his book. It's a whole book. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, rich material in there that came out in 1988, so it's quite old. Does he think that, well, okay, so development along those lines, yeah, it's impossible because unless you want to carry out genocide against indigenous populations or reintroduce the slave trade, you know, I guess that would be impossible. But does he then rule out development for countries in the global south altogether? He's interesting because he is very, very critical of development within the capitalist system uh, and exposes, you know, time and again, like through his theories and through his empirical work, how incredibly uneven development is and how poverty in developing countries has been enduring, et cetera. But then he also actually is quite optimistic in terms of some of his, um, like his outlook. And I guess part of it has to do with, well, he was writing in the 50s, 60s and 70s. 
some of his, uh, you know, most influential work. And that was a period where it wasn't clear what was going to happen. There was a lot of South-South um, collaboration, a lot of um, socialist, you know, um, governments in Africa. And I think he was quite optimistic about these um, governments being able to find their own path and delink is what he calls. He also has a book on called Delinking, which is one of the um, ways that he saw that development could happen in the in the third world, as he called it. Uh, and delinking for him then is not like completely removing yourself from the global economy. Like it's not autarky. It's like not like cutting off trade, but rather um, this kind of refusal to just uh, like submit your national development strategy to the imperatives of global capital. So that's kind of is the main thing of delinking. How exactly to do this? I mean, it's very complicated. He has like lots of different ideas, of, but the key is that countries need to develop their own like productive systems to not be dependent on production elsewhere and prioritize the needs of the people rather than the demands of international capital. Um, so he was like very critical of any attempt of developing countries at the time to imitate the West, which a lot of countries were doing and are still doing in many ways. So he had this, yeah, this idea of delinking and he was really, really engaged in um, social movements and built a lot of social movements as well. I was a part of um, the World Social Forum uh, and built a lot of institutions in Africa and Senegal in particular. So he was very optimistic about change and I think he really did contribute to, well, building these institutions was very important. And he was a part of like building Cadestria, for example, which is a, a strong academic institution in Africa that's based in Senegal, um, that brings radical scholars together to propose alternatives, alternative ways of thinking, et cetera. So um, he didn't think development was impossible, no, but he did, you know, see that it was, it would be very difficult. It wouldn't take the same path as the yeah, development exactly. that happened in Europe. So just if I could go back for a sec, when you said that mainstream scholars for a long time saw European development as endogenous, that meant that it was some, there was something internally going on within Europe, like maybe it was like the Protestant Reformation or something which led to development? Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, and good, yeah, correction to make me <laughs> be more clear and, uh, and elaborate a bit more. So basically, yeah, there was an internal process that came from Europe itself that was about uh, people becoming yeah, more rational, more scientific, developing their product productive skills, becoming more productive, developing technology, having, yeah, I mean, yeah, it could also have to do with culture, that all the uh, explanations for the development of um, capitalism came from within Europe itself and not from, you know, any kind of extraction from colonies or anything like that. And you teach, Ingrid, you teach undergrads? Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you find that many of your undergrads are coming into your class, like from high school, with that understanding of the way that the world developed, that, that there was something about Europe, something magical about Europe that sort of divorces that development story from, from extraction? Or do you, do you see that most of your students coming in really do understand that relationship between Europe and the global South and that extractive relationship? I think um, most, so I'm in the UK, so <laughs> A-levels here is quite um, narrow in the way that it teaches global history. So if they've taken history at all, um, they'll have quite um, Eurocentric understanding, I guess, of how the world works very often, unless they've read on their own. I don't know if you've seen like the statistics about what like most British people think about colonialism, but <laughs> I haven't seen it. I, okay. 
<laughs> public education is quite bad here in terms of like a lot of mm. British people think that, you know, the empire and the British empire generally was good for developing countries. And there's something mm. that we should be proud of. So my experience teaching um, undergrads coming from the UK is very interesting because I feel like it often kind of blows their mind to get this alternative uh, story, which they for mo most of the time I've never heard before. So it's kind of uh, disappointing in a way because, you know, you should, yeah. you know, it, you shouldn't have to go to university to, to learn kind of a basic basics about colonialism and the slave trade. But yeah, it's mm -hmm. where we are. Yeah. I want to come back to Samir Min's uh, ideas for a second. You wrote about his stressing the, the, the need to think temporarily. And in particular, this term, the thinking about the, the long durée. And I, I don't, I don't really think I know what that means. So, so what does he? What do you mean? What does he mean by thinking temporarily? And what is the long durée? Yeah. So, thinking temporarily was something that we um, we came up with when we wrote about it. When we kind of defined his his approach, um, he talks about the long durée, which is um, something that um, Giovanni Arrighi also writes about. It's like seeing development in the. I mean, it's thinking, maybe thinking historically actually is a bit more intuitive, intuitive way of putting it. So Arrighi wrote about it because he was looking at like cycles and like understanding some cycles of the global economy. Um, in terms of Amin, he, it's quite important for his approach that he goes back to at least colonialism in order to understand how development, the possibilities of development today and like the structures of the global economy today. And it's important to go back to, yeah, through history in order to understand how these like colonial legacies came about in the first place and to show how, you know, they endured um, even after colonialism ended formally. So he looks at how, for example, production is organized, um, you know, in a very developing countries like during colonialism were um, structured in a way so that co the colonizers could extract resources from them, right? So that extroversion is still there um, to a large degree um, for very many developing countries. So it affects how production and trade is organized and what these countries export, for example. And it also helps um, to understand yeah, how technology is distributed globally, patterns of ownership, and he talks about yeah how banking systems are structured, which you can also like see going back to the colonial period and like draw lines to how they're organized today. That's yeah what we basically meant by thinking temporarily that in order yeah to explain what's like going on today, basically it really helps to look at how these structures came about in the first place. I mean, so I sort of feel like that's like kind of an obvious thing, right? I mean, so I'm wondering <laughs> why yeah what what is your sense of why in the academy that doesn't happen more? Um, it's, a, yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of these things, <laughs> when you, yeah, think about what Samir Min is writing, it does seem kind of obvious, I like, think mm. about structures, thinking about history, but, uh, mm. yeah, contrasting it to yeah, how most economic, economic theorizing is done today actually, yeah, shows how, how different it is. I mean, there is economic history as a subfield in economics, yeah. so it's not like they don't, they don't have history, but a lot of, um, like, except for economic history, uh, the way a lot of development economics is organized is often around like looking at poverty and often through like behavioral, the, what we talked about actually in the last podcast, right? The mm -hmm. nudges and the randomized control trials right. is like very big in developing countries now. And also this focus on corruption. It's how the economics field has kind of developed to become yeah, less historical, less political, yeah. um, more narrow. Um, unfortunately. Uh, and what's so interesting uh, about, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
No, I don't know. I was just thinking about it, like, was I actually answering your question? And your no, I think you are. Why? I, why, right? I think yeah. you are. I mean, I, I don't know the answer to it. Uh, <laughs> but I think what's interesting is, is I'm thinking about the people that I've talked to, certainly not all, but the people that I've talked to who do economic history, they're doing really great work, but sometimes I feel like they're not putting, even the economic history, they're not putting it into the context of other things which may be happening in the world outside of this, like, narrow field of study. And yeah. they're not thinking about it. Yeah, they're not thinking about it politically. And I've, I've talked to people that I would expect would be, I, sort of, I, I'm asking about what's going on in England. I'm like, okay, well, like, then how does that relate to, you know, what's happening in, you know, in the transatlantic slave trade? And they're like, well, you know, like, that's not what I deal with at all. And I wonder if maybe part of the answer, I'm just thinking it through here, is that it's like really difficult to do what Giovanni Arrighi does or what Samir Min does, because they kind of have to understand the history of, of the whole world going back to, you know, the 15th century. And maybe that's, maybe that's why it doesn't happen, because it's, it's really hard and you have to make all sorts of connections. Uh, yeah, I think you're right to a certain extent. I mean, it's really hard, but uh, a lot of, yeah, scientific research is really hard. Right. I, think, uh, <laughs> um, I think also, actually, a key thing is that uh, in the mainstream, economic history is, yeah, very different from how Samir Amin did it, basically, exactly what, how you said, is extremely narrow. And I think it's actually the point, the major reason is that they're constrained by their method. And in economics, it's kind of like a methods-driven field these days. And you have to, like, have a very clean... A quantitative analysis. You have to have data set that you can run regressions on. Uh, so often what's done is this, you know, you find some data from the colonial period and then you compare it to data today, <laughs> which uh, mm-hmm. is what Gareth, Aust- Gareth Austin, who's at the at University of Cambridge now, he, uh, he calls it like the compression of history because it's often like, you know, data points at um, you know, one in colonial during colonialism and then today, and like not really looking at what happened in between, and then you just like see what was the impact of yeah different things like I don't know how much migration there was or um, uh, what kind if you're a settler, settler colony or not um, that kind of kind of very narrow question rather than the big <laughs> big questions that Samir Min asked that actually require you know archival work and more qualitative approach that it wouldn't be considered rigorous in economics today. I see. I see. So I want to talk about two different theories and, and ask you where Samir Min is in relation to these theories. So one is dependency theory. We, we touched on it earlier, but I'm not, I don't think I've ever done a show on dependency theory and, and I'm not sure that I feel really confident with my understanding about what it is. And then also to go back to Arigi, I'm, I'm glad that you brought him up because I, I, I know that he is a really important voice in the world systems theory, but maybe you could talk about what that is and, and whether or not that's similar to the t- dependency theory. Would that be okay? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question um, that you ask. And I... Um... I'm very happy to answer that question because that was what I was working on <laughs> during my PhD. Okay, great. Uh, so I've thought a lot about what dependency theory is and I think you're not the only person who doesn't know what it is because there's like so much confusion about what it is and people have different definitions and ideas of what it is. Um, and it's been like thoroughly misunderstood throughout history of the theory basically. And I mean, in simple terms, I would say that like so Teotonio dos Santos is this uh, Brazilian dependency theorist who wrote in the 70s, like a very simple definition that's often used, 
And he said, a, a dependency is a situation in which the economy is conditioned by the development and expansion of another. There's like very, there's less conditioning going on. But he doesn't, but there's disagreement in among dependency theorists about how this conditioning is happening. How did it come to be conditioned? What are the drivers? What are the consequences? So there's like massive debates. There's Samira Min, who's one figure in those debates, but um, the person who's very often referred to is Andre Gunder Frank, um, who is often seen as like a spokesperson of dependency theory, who was writing about how like development and underdevelopment were two sides of the same coin. And I think one of the reasons why it's often misunderstood is because, um, well, Frank's theory is the most famous one and often the one people people refer to, um, and it's also maybe the most simplistic one, uh, and it's like been thoroughly, thoroughly critiqued. But there is a very rich literature on the dependency theory beyond Frank. That's why it's like not actually a theory; it's a like a full body of theories. Where there's Marxists and structuralists and institutionalists, <laughs> and they're in Latin America and they're in Africa, and they're debating each other. So people think like a, one of the critiques that has been um, directed towards dependency theory is that is like full of contradictions, that there's no like clarity about what dependency actually means. But the reason for this is that there isn't agreement, like there's massive debate. Um, scholars don't agree on, on what it actually is, what drives it. Um, as I said, yeah, some are Marxists, some are structuralists, like it, it, yeah. So basically um, when I was re-reviewing all these theories during my PhD and also the critiques of them, I found this, um, discrepancy between the critiques and the actual theories. Um, and it seems to, like it's basically often considered outdated and debunked and everything. But uh, I think really it's been marginalized as a scholarship, like a lot of other heterodox economic theories. And what I kind of tried to do, what I did in my PhD and that I eventually published um, last year was to redefine it as a research program. Uh, where like it has a common method, which is what we've already talked about, this global historical approach. They have that in common. They have a core hypothesis in common, all the different theories, which is that global capitalism tends to be polarizing, but they don't say, most of the theories don't say that like development is impossible, like capitalist development is impossible, they just say it's very uh, difficult. Um, and they have this focus on structures of production and constraints that are faced by peripheral economies. So those things are things that they have in common. Uh, and then, you know, there's debate about, you know, the different aspects of those things. I think, I mean, these things are still highly relevant. So, <laughs> and there are, there is still quite a lot of um, uh, dependency theory research going on. I think there's been a little bit of a revival lately. And you asked about world systems theory as well. And mm -hmm. um, so world systems theory, I mean, sometimes, actually Samir Min himself categorizes world systems theory as a strand of dependency theory. So I think okay. in my definition of, you know, it's a research program, world systems theory would fit there. It's another version of dependency theory where they, I mean, it, it's a bit more abstract approach um, uh, where they look at the core and the periphery and the semi-periphery. So they have like another buffer there between the core and the periphery. Uh, and they take a bit less of, um, uh, it's maybe a bit more mechanistic in a way, looking at the economy like that, because the dependency theories tend to look at, like, for example, like Dos Santos would look at the Brazilian economy and the how like the colonial legacies and that impacted Brazil and how being a part of the global economy would have put certain constraints of Brazil and what they were and like take a more bottom-up approach even though they were considering the globe like the relation in the global economy whereas the world systems theory is a bit more yeah a bit more a higher level 
I, I'm not sure that I, I totally understand um, the distinction or, or why it's, um, why all dependency theorists aren't global systems theorists. What's the, the distinction there? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think a dependency theorist, like for example, yeah, I think, well, like actually Dos Santos or Cardoso, who was actually became the president of Brazil later. Yeah, that's uh, so they, interesting. They, when, when he became the president, <laughs> was he still a dependency theorist? Uh, um, <laughs> that's questionable. Okay. He, yeah, it was quite conservative. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> politically. Um, so they, I think they they look at the the specifics of Brazil, right? And same with other dependency theories like Marini, Bambera, um, and the world systems theorists. They don't look at the specifics of any of these countries. Um, so it's more of a uh, yeah, higher level theory of um, Oh, I see what you mean by higher level. Okay, that makes sense. I see that what you mean by higher level. And so when you say polarization, just to be clear, you mean that capitalism trends towards polarization in terms of wealth and income? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And is that like sort of like the U.S. is rich and Brazil is poor, or is it that capitalism also makes rich and poor people in the United States as well as the United States as a whole rich and Brazil poor? Yeah, so I, I think so. It's um, the dependency theorists would say that it's both. Um, I think uh, so. Marxists generally would say, um, you know, capitalism produces uneven outcomes, but the dependency theorists pointed specifically to the unevenness in the global economy uh, because it was they were they were a re reaction to modernization theorists, as I mentioned before, but they were also kind of mm -hmm. a reaction to Eurocentric Marxists <laughs> who were only looking at advanced countries. Um, mm. So, you know, the, those Marxists would say, oh, you know, you have uneven, unevenness, of course, uh, whereas the dependency theories would point specifically to the unevenness in the global, in the global system, but they would also share with the, you know, other, the other Marxists that they also look at unevenness generally, so also within, within country inequality as well.